0: Well, the message has already been thoroughly preached in the music. I suggest we just pray and go eat. (laughs) I don't think Drew will let me do that. I really appreciate all the work that Fred and the choir, all the people involved in the music do. They really have prepared our hearts this morning and uh, pray that uh, your hearts will receive the very simple message that we're going to deliver today. Well, here we are at a uh, time of the year where people evaluate the past 12 months and set goals for the coming new year. You know you don't have to wait till the new year to set a new goal. (laughs) And if you happen to fail in your goal that you're setting for the coming year, you can start again, Okay, But one of those goals might include losing a few pounds After the holiday season of sweets and treats and office parties and large family gatherings, which often included large amounts of food, we'll all seek to reduce our calorie intake. We'll vow to drink more water, hop on our clothes rack. I I mean, our stationary bike or treadmill. (laughs) Others will buy expensive walking shoes or purchase a gym membership and plan to wake up early every day to exercise. Some will attempt to rearrange their lives so they can spend more time with their family and not be so consumed with their job. Many of us will embark on a Bible reading schedule to help read through the Bible, the entire Bible, over the next year. All of these are good things that will require adjusting our schedules, prioritizing what is important to us. As the year progresses, life will get busy, and there'll be things that will enter into the equation, unexpected circumstances, responsibilities, opportunities, they'll all force a readjustment of our priorities and undermine our resolve that we've made. Sometimes our life can be like a cell phone or a computer. We get so busy, we have too many applications running at the same time in our life. And sometimes with a computer or a phone, you have to do a hard restart and reset it so that it'll work like it's supposed to work. Sometimes we need to shut down for a while and restart our way of thinking about what's really important. We need to regularly reevaluate the things that are taking priority in our lives and make sure we're not neglecting the important things. The church at Corinth had a special place in the heart of the Apostle Paul. But they also had a multitude of spiritual challenges that they faced. They quarreled among themselves. They lacked humility and love in the way they dealt with one another. They abused their Christian liberty, overlooked immorality, and were t- taking one another before secular judges rather than dealing with one another biblically. Toward the end of his first letter to the church of Corinth, Paul points them back to their spiritual foundation by Reminding them of the gospel that he had preached to them and its importance. Let's read those few verses in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain... FOR I DELIVERED TO YOU AS OF FIRST IMPORTANCE WHAT I ALSO RECEIVED, THAT CHRIST DIED FOR OUR SINS IN ACCORDANCE WITH THE SCRIPTURES, THAT HE WAS BURIED, THAT HE WAS RAISED ON THE THIRD DAY IN ACCORDANCE WITH THE SCRIPTURES. SOMETIMES THE MOST IMPORTANT TRUTH IS THE EASIEST TO FORGET. PAUL'S STATEMENT HERE IN 1 CORINTHIANS 15 IS THE GOSPEL in its simplest form. But don't let the simplicity of the gospel cause you to underestimate its depth. As we study the scriptures, we see bound up in those words, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and his subsequent victory over death by his resurrection. Wonderful and deep truths such as atonement, regeneration, salvation, redemption, propitiation, expiation, justification, sanctification, and we could go on and on. The gospel is foundational to everything we believe and do as followers of Christ. But we mistakenly diminish the gospel many times by thinking of it as an elementary truth rather than the foundational truth from which every aspect of our lives should grow and developed. In their simple little Bible study, The Gospel-Centered Life, Robert Thune and Will Walker make the following observation. Many Christians live with a truncated view of the gospel. They see the gospel as the door, the way in, the entrance point into God's kingdom. But the gospel is so much more. It is not just the door, but the path we are to walk every day of the Christian life. It's not just the means of our salvation, but the means of our transformation. It's not simply deliverance from sin's penalty, but release from sin's power. The gospel is what makes us right with God, and it is also what frees us to delight in God. The gospel changes everything. No one expresses this more clearly or passionately than the Apostle Paul. In Romans 1:16, Paul states that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He later commends the Colossian believers because the word of truth, he says the gospel, had come to them bearing fruit and increasing since the day they heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. To the Philippians, Paul said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable to his death. He wrote to the Galatians and said, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Christ our Lord, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. C.J. Mahaney, in his little book, The Cross-Centered Life, makes this comment. He says the cross was the centerpiece of Paul's theology. It wasn't merely one of Paul's messages it was the message. Whatever he taught was always derived from and related to the foundational reality that Jesus died so that sinners would be reconciled to God. Paul was gospel-centered. He was cross-centered. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul said he resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's a That's a pretty major statement. I I determined to know nothing other than Jesus Christ and him crucified because everything grows from that. Paul was a theological workhorse, but his theology was tethered to the foundational gospel truth that Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead in order to reconcile us to God. Paul never outgrew his need for the gospel. And neither do we. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves of how God brought us into this amazing redemptive relationship. For the remainder of our time together, I'm going to focus on some various aspects of the gospel. Nothing I'm going to say will be new. This is material that I like in a gospel relationship with someone when I'm trying to share with them my faith in in Christ. I try to go through these kinds of things with them to help them understand the gospel message and their need of Christ. First of all, we have to understand there's bad news. The word gospel means good news, but before we can appreciate good news, we need to understand the bad news. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, that sin resulted in death, both spiritually and physically. Death is a subject that most of us would rather not discuss. Yet death is something we all will eventually face. It's a universal equalizer. It plays no favorites. Death is not partial to gender. Both men and women die. Death is not a respecter of age. The old, the young, and everyone in between die. Death does not recognize ethnic, racial, or cultural differences. People of every language group and skin color and nationality die. Death cannot be bargained with on the basis of our social or economic standing. Rich, poor, the elite, and the outcast the educated, and the ignorant all die. That is the bad news. Science and medicine have been able to extend our days, even improve the quality of our lives in some instances, but they cannot they cannot prevent the inevitable. Every time you and I gather together at a funeral of someone that we know, we are confronted with the reality of our own mortality. We too will die. If the Lord tarries in time, people will stand around my casket and yours and reminisce about the old days. Death may be inevitable, but there's nothing natural about it. We were created by an eternal God who created us to live an eternal life with Him. It may be inevitable, but it's not natural. Every time someone dies, it's a stark reminder to each one of us that something is terribly wrong in the world, that something is fundamentally broken. The world is broken. The Bible tells us how this tragic scenario in which we all live came to be. In Romans chapter five, the Apostle Paul gives us insight into this predicament in which we all find ourselves. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul explains to us that when Adam, who was the representative of the entire human race, chose to rebel against God, he plunged the entire human race into sin and death. And that includes us. The Bible declares that in Adam, we all died. And because of Adam's willful decision to ignore God's warning, sin became a part of our very nature. As Drew often says, sin is in our spiritual DNA. We're born sinners. And our sin alienates us from the God who created us. We are sinners by birth, but we are also sinners by choice. And Paul declares in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned, and come short of God's glory." But God has a redemptive plan. God has a way of reconciling us to Himself. Even in the midst of the tragic fall of Adam and Eve, God began to reveal to them and to us His plan for making things right again, His plan for redeeming us from the curse of sin and of death and reconciling us to Himself. In the garden, we see the first sacrifice. An innocent animal was killed to provide covering for Adam and Eve. The blood of an innocent one was shed to help cover the nakedness of the offenders. And we find in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, the first mention of God's gospel plan, ordained by God before the very foundation of the world. God promised that even though the serpent would bruise the heel of the woman's seed, the woman's seed would crush his head. And thus the picture is painted for us. In the book of Leviticus, we see the development of a sacrificial system ordained by God that pictured the innocent being slain for the guilty as payment for the sins committed. But it was was only a picture, an example of a future reality we know this because the writer of Hebrews tells us it, it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You could only temporarily cover them. So what did we do what did we learn from these kind of sacrifices? What do we learn from this sacrificial system? Because the sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over again, the constant bloodletting of the Old Testament sacrifices teach us that human effort is grossly inadequate to fix our sin problem. We can't fix ourselves. We need to be fixed. But the prophet Isaiah spoke of someone who could take away our sin. Not just temporarily. Cover them over for a period of time. But take them away. Isaiah 53, 4-6. through six. to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The entire story of the Bible is the story of God's redemptive plan to bring people back into a right relationship with him. What we were created for, to know him, to commune with him, to see him face to face but a terrible curse hangs over all creation. And the Bible tells us that all of creation is in birth pains, waiting to be delivered from the curse of sin and death. And we see the consequences of sin all around us. Wars, strife, poverty, disease, school shootings, terrorist attacks. Everywhere we turn, death is all around us. If we're not careful, though, it's easy for us to look at all the terrible things that we see happening in the world around us, declare that they are wrong, even sinful, but fail to see that we are part of the problem, that we are part of this fallen and sin-cursed world ourselves. If we don't know Christ as our Savior, our sin makes us an enemy of God. We hesitate to see ourselves for what God's Word declares us to be, sinners, broken and in need of being rescued. And although not all of us are as sinful as we could be, it is also true that none of us are as good as we must be if we are to avoid God's judgment. For God declares that the soul that sins must die and who among us would declare that we are without sin? The Bible clearly teaches that we have all fallen dreadfully short of God's standard of righteousness. No one is good, not even one, the Bible says, for all have sinned and all fall short of God's glorious standard. Apart from the Savior, even the best person we know cannot merit God's favor or deserve God's forgiveness. We need to be rescued. And God does just that. He comes to rescue us. This wonderful truth that God provided for us the free gift of salvation when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to become the wrath-bearing substitute for our sin by sacrificing himself on the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 and 21. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's law is clear. We are to love him with all our hearts, all our minds, all our strength, We were made to be connected with him in this way. But we have all loved other things more, which is the very essence of sin. John Piper reminds us that since God is just, he cannot and does not sweep the crimes of our sin against him under some cosmic rug. He feels a holy wrath against them. They deserve to be punished and he has made this clear The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. There is a holy curse hanging over all mankind. And in order for God to accept us, something has to be done about the sin. A great exchange has to take place. Several years ago when Jeremy Morris was here, he used this illustration, and I thought it was very applicable for the day. We talk about this great exchange. When we place our trust, the full weight of our confidence in Christ alone, this great exchange takes place. Jesus, God's perfect sinless son gets my sin. And in exchange, I get something I desperately need. I get the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That makes me acceptable to God.